Hey everyone, I'm your host, Lacey Cruz, and this is Through the Fire, an NPBC podcast. On this episode, we're starting into Hebrews, which is a very difficult book of the Bible to understand and really apply, but we're going to go through this. Um, Today, we're going to do the intro a little bit about the book, about the author, and then we're going to go through Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. So without further ado, let's jump in. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can find me on Instagram anytime at Building Lois Ministries. That's Lois, L-O-I-S. If you need me, comments will get my attention much faster than DMs. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you guys next week. So a short intro to Hebrews. The author is unknown, because he doesn't name himself. In the early church, it was thought to be Barnabas or Paul, but there are many noted differences in style and method of argument between Hebrews and Paul's known writings. The style is well-educated in Greek. Vocab is sophisticated and unlike other New Testament books, and the structure is also Greek. Um, Today, scholars also add Clement, Luke, and Apollos to the list of possible authors. All of them have an association with Paul, though, so it's similar to Paul because they're associated with him, but it's not quite written specifically by Paul because it doesn't really match his other letters. Most people will concede that this author remains anonymous, so that's how we're going to go through this study, Um, but I will give you my opinion. Um, We don't have to agree on it. I'm just going to lay my argument out. Um, My opinion is that it's Apollos. He's from Alexandria. He traveled with and around Paul, uh, like it talks about in Acts 18.24. He was taught by Paul's companions, Priscilla and Aquila, in Acts 18.24-28. Paul knew him personally and encouraged him in his ministry, as we can see in 1 Corinthians 16.12. Apollos was highly educated and schooled in the literary style present in Hebrews. He was a Jewish believer, so he was very knowledgeable in the Old Testament, which, as we're going to see when we get into this, that's the whole argument is about the Old Testament. Uh, Apollos was known as a great defender of the faith, and became as influential as Paul and Peter in the early church. Also, Martin Luther believed it was Apollos. So that's my argument, but we're going to go through this study as if the author is completely anonymous because that is what most people will concede to and agree on. The audience of Hebrews is not clearly designated but is assumed to be Jewish Christians based on the title and the language within it. The author clearly knew his recipients and longed to be reunited with them, as we can see in chapter 13, verse 19. The author and the audience had a mutual friend in Timothy, which is chapter 13, verse 23, and the author passed on greetings of those, quote-unquote, from Italy as he says in chapter 13, verse 24. But we're unsure if that means the author or the audience was in Rome. 
The author also commended his audience for their endurance of persecution, for their compassion on those in prison, and for having joyfully accepted the plundering of their property in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. The audience had to be from a Jewish background to understand the many citations and allusions to the Old Testament. So that's kind of how we're going to go from here. We're going to say that it's Jewish Christians, but we don't know where they're at, um, and it doesn't really give a whole lot more information on them. The date of this letter is thought to be before A.D. 70. Because of the mention of Timothy, who was active in the first century church, because of the language about the Jewish sacrificial system, which makes it sound like that sacrificial system was still a present reality. And also, A.D. 70 was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem temple sacrifices stopped once the temple was destroyed, obviously. So, um, because it sounds like the sacrificial system was still going, we know it had to be before the destruction of the temple. So now let's look at the theme. This is a long sentence, and I got it straight out of my ESV study Bible. So hang tight, but I think this explains uh, the theme a lot better than I could ever explain it. Christ is greater than any angel, priest, or old covenant institution. Thus, each reader, rather than leaving such a great salvation, is summoned to hold on by faith to the true rest found in Christ and to encourage others in the church to persevere. That's what this whole thing is about. How great Christ is, and then what we do about it. We hold on by faith to the true rest found in him, and we encourage others to keep persevering as well. So now that we've got the whole intro down, we're going to keep all of that in mind as we read from here, and we read over the next several weeks the book of Hebrews. But now we're going to jump in to chapter 1. Chapters 1 and 2 discuss how Jesus is superior to angelic beings. Now how we're going to go through this book is we're going to look through the outline that's given in my ESV study Bible, and we're going to look through each section separately. So the first section is chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and it's the summary of the Son's person and work. Verse 1 starts off by God speaking to the prophets and the patriarchs, connecting the Old Testament to where they are now in the New Testament. Let's read that together. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So yeah, verse 1, God spoke to the prophets and the patriarchs. Verse 2, God now speaks through his son. 
In verses 2 and 3, it goes into who is this son? He's an exact imprint of the father's nature, meaning equal, not lesser, an exact imprint. He sat down, showing his work of salvation was complete. And where he sat is also important. He sat at the right hand of the father, the place of supreme authority. And then verse 4 is the theme of chapters 1 and 2 revealed that he's going to be talking about Jesus compared to angels. So now we're going to look at the evidence of his status as son. The next section, verses 5 to 14. Let's read that together. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So verse 5, the first part comes from Psalm 2, which describes the Messiah as the anointed one and king over all. The second part is from 2 Samuel seven fourteen to David about his covenant heir who will be designated as God's own son. Verse 6 comes from Psalm 97, verse 7. It's interpretive, not an exact quote from that passage. Angels are sons of God, but without the rights of the one Son of God. Verse 7 is a quote from Psalm 104. This psalm points to the Lord as creator and sustainer of all things, including angels, and implies that their splendor comes from his hand. Verses 8 and 9 quote Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. This psalm points to the Davidic Messiah. He possesses an eternal kingdom and reigns in true righteousness. Verses 10 to 12 quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. This psalm emphasizes the role of the Son in creation. Also has new heaven and new earth references. Verse 13 cites Psalm 110, verse 1. This psalm talks about great David's greater son, which we know is the Messiah. Jesus even applied this psalm to himself in Matthew twenty-two forty-four. Verse 14, the purpose of angels is ministering to Christian believers. So basically, all of chapter 1 says, angels are great and powerful, 
but the sun is the greatest and the most powerful. So we can see here that there's an argument going on about who Jesus is and him compared to angels. So obviously, we can see that this was a problem in the early church. Otherwise, there'd be no need to really hit on this and harp on it for so long using all of these Old Testament passages, right? So we know that at some point this was a problem for people to understand the difference between Jesus and angels. What each of them's job was and what their true nature was. So that's that's important to realize as we go further into this, into other arguments that the author is going to bring up to know that obviously these were a problem. So we need to keep them from being a problem again by studying this. Now let's look at the next section, which is chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and it's called Warning Against Neglecting Salvation. So let's read that real quick. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So verse 1 is saying lean into the Old Testament and the gospel. Prior revelation is not irrelevant. The Old Testament is not irrelevant because we have the New Testament now. Prior revelation is important because it points to Jesus it points to the Messiah. The Old Testament tells us a lot about who God is, who his people were, but ultimately it all points to Jesus. So it's still valid and it's still important to really learn from the Old Testament, not just the new one. Verses 2 to 4, the gospel was declared by God, seen by firsthand witnesses, and confirmed by God through signs, wonders, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So it goes through the whole thing right there about how we can believe the gospel. That's so important. The next section is chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, and it's titled, The Founder of Salvation. So verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
So it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So let's go back to verse 5. Verse 5 says, The world isn't subjected to angels. That's so important to understand, especially for new Christians who might not understand exactly what angels are here for. Um, Chapters 1 and 2 are very important for them to read. The world is not subjected to the angels. Verses 6 to 8 is quoted from Psalm 8, 4 to 6. This psalm shows God's special care for mankind, but the Son of Man is the truest representative of mankind. The second part of verse 8 basically says nothing is outside of Jesus' control, but everything is not yet in subjection to him. So part of that promise is not yet fulfilled. Verse 9, the definition of the gospel. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear, and it's such a beautiful verse. It's a great one to memorize um, if that's something that you're trying to do more of in 2022. Um, memorizing verses is so important. So important, and this would be a great one to memorize, is Hebrews 2, 9. Verses 10 to 11, the one source that it's talking about here is the Father. And we are brothers with Jesus since we have the same Father. That's why it says he's not ashamed to call them brothers. That one source is the Father, and Jesus calls us brothers and sisters because we have that same father. Verse 12 quotes Psalm 22, which is associated with the Messiah's death and resurrection. Verse 13 quotes Isaiah 8, 17, and 18. And verses 14 to 18 talk about Jesus' sacrifice. He had to be flesh and blood to be able to free us from slavery to the devil. And angels are not saved by this. Mankind is. That high priest language that it's using here is going to come up a lot more later. But basically, he became our high priest so that he could atone for everyone and for every individual person's sins that they would ever commit. And when it says suffered when tempted, it's important to note he did not sin 
when he was tempted, but he did suffer. Also, verses 17 and 18 are also very good memorizing verses. Um, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's so beautiful. It's so hopeful. Um, And I just really, really enjoy digging into Hebrews, especially this first section. Um, It has such beautiful language that is all about what Christ has done for us. And it's a great reminder as we start this study of Hebrews that that is what needs to be kept at the forefront through this whole book exactly what Christ did for us because sometimes we can get bogged down in Hebrews because it can be a difficult book to understand at times but we want to keep Christ's sacrifice and what all he's done for us at the forefront through this whole thing